It's time to open the Word of God. So would you stand with me as we read John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. And now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? You're always faithful to us, Father. Thank you for your word today. We look to you and we desire to draw near to you. We continue to pray for our brother Greg in the hospital. Lord, would you heal him? Would you strengthen him? Lord, get him home with his family. Lord, we lift up to you with heavy hearts, John and Rachel, with the loss of their baby Benjamin. We thank you that He has been resurrected with you. Lord, we pray that in this time for John and Rachel that you would strengthen them, Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would meet their need, which is more of you, which is peace. Lord, we just look to you for them. We pray that they would fix their eyes on you, Lord, and that you might strengthen their faith. Lead us today, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. But hey, now, why don't we open our Bibles? Well, you probably already have them open to John chapter 18. Continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Last week, finishing or doing the whole chapter, chapter 17. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will be glad to get one to you so you can follow along with us in our study. Keep it up so they can see. And if you do not own a Bible, we'd love for that to be a gift to you, that Bible. Uh, Just let us know if you're going to take it home so we can stock up. So John 17, last week we studied through the prayer of Jesus, which was first of all for himself, then for his disciples, then for all believers, fulfilling very much this role of the high priest who would pray for himself, pray for his household, pray for the assembly of Israel. And, and it's interesting that at the same time while Jesus is preparing himself to be the acceptable sacrifice, praying, and fulfilling this role of the high priest, at the same time, 
The high priest there in Jerusalem is plotting with Judas to arrest Jesus as Jesus simultaneously fulfills this role of the high priest in prayer. And here today in chapter 18, then, we begin the passion of Christ. It'll be chapter 18, 19, looking at the arrest, looking at his trial, and looking at, of course, his crucifixion. And so in the beginning here, we see that this today, we're looking specifically at the arrest in Gethsemane. In verse one there, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he had his disciples, he and his disciples entered. After the essential teachings of John 13 through 16, and the essential prayer of John 17, this is what was next. We talked for so many weeks now about how essential these words were, how essential the preparation was for the disciples, and that's what Jesus was all about. That's what the upper room discourse was all about, Jesus giving preparation to the disciples, preparing them for what is coming, and this is it. This is the beginning of what is coming. This is what he had warned them about. This is what he had been preparing them for. It's like a runner, or an Olympic runner, who who's been training and training and training and training, all of the preparation, and then it is race day, right? Many of you guys know Pastor Mark, he ran a marathon a few weeks ago. I don't know why, but he did. <laughs> For months, he prepared. You know, he would build up the mileage every day a little bit more, and then he had eating certain foods, specific foods, to be able to strengthen himself and prepare himself physically. There was mental preparation all for this 26-plus mile race. Again, I don't know why, but he did. And then came race day and all the anticipation, and there it is, it's time. And for, for in my mind, 26-mile race, it's time to suffer, Right? And anybody who's run a marathon probably would tell you, yes, there is suffering, but there's rejoicing as well when you cross the finish line. But here, all the preparation had come to this day. It's race day. It's game day. Jesus had prepared them for this. And we're going to see some of how they respond, but how Jesus responds, first of all, they went out, out of the center city, and they went over the brook Kidron. The brook Kidron was known as a winter torrent. So the reality is in the winter time in Israel is the rainy season. Uh, We've been there several times in February and it rains almost every day or every other day and at least a little bit. You get used to it. It's fine. It's still a great trip, right? But it's the rainy season and the brook Kidron would be dry most of the year except for in the rainy season. But even in the rainy season, it would only be certain specific times that the water would be running down that they would be able to see the water run through this brook. However, this time of year, it was Passover, we know. So although they may not have seen much water flowing, they would have seen, in fact, blood flowing through the brook Kidron. 
And so isn't it interesting that Jesus, leaving the center of the city, crossing over the the brook Kidron, they would get a picture of the sacrifice that had been taking place for the Passover, the many sacrifices that were taking place in Israel for the Passover. And so now that blood would be flowing through the brook. And this symbolism, in this picture that they get to see, an example of the sacrifice. So Jesus, with his disciples, crossed over the brook, flowing with blood from the Passover sacrifices as he was preparing himself to be the acceptable sacrifice. He prayed for that in John 17. He prayed that he would be the acceptable sacrifice when he said, Father, glorify your son. He was praying, you remember we studied last week, that he would be the acceptable, perfect sacrifice. So we see that, then we we continue, it says that there was a garden. John doesn't name the garden, but we know it to be Gethsemane. We know according to the other gospels, this is the garden of Gethsemane. And the, the word Gethsemane means oil press. In an oil press, olives were crushed, broken, and ground so that oil might be produced. It's quite a process, right? I mean, it literally is a crushing place. It literally is a a grinding place, a breaking place, a place of pressing. In the scripture, oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit. And even to this day, we anoint people with oil to symbolize the Holy Spirit coming upon. So before the Holy Spirit could be given, the Son of God, the Messiah, had to be broken, to be crushed, and he went to this place. Just as in order to get oil, olives had to be crushed. It was no coincidence that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to experience the heaviness of the burden that he was about to bear. And this, this, so this is, they cross over the brook, they get a symbolism, a picture of all the sacrifice taking place in Jerusalem at that time. They're in a place that's called Gethsemane to get a picture of the crushing and the pressing that was about to take place through the cross. It was a place of pressing for the Messiah. And John passes over the account of Jesus being pressed specifically in the garden. But Matthew speaks very, in, in great detail about it. In great detail, he, he tells us about the prayer in the garden. It tells us about how Jesus was sweating drops of blood. He was stressed beyond belief as he prayed in anguish that, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But John passes over the account because John wants to represent only the majestic nature of Jesus here. We don't see, John is, is constantly just pointing us to the majestic nature of Jesus. But of course, we have Matthew who tells us about this, and, and it says, it specifically says there was a garden. And there's significance even in 
the garden. And we have a significance going back to the beginning of creation of the Garden of Eden when God created things in perfection and now Jesus fights this battle of will in the Garden of Gethsemane to overcome in his perfection and bring redemption in his perfection, a fullness. You see, in Eden, man first lost his relationship with the Father. He created distance between God and man. In Gethsemane, the relationship with the Father was restored through submission, through the perfection of Christ, because man lacked perfection in the perfect garden that God created. In Eden, Adam tried to hide from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus bore his soul before God. And not only that, we're going to continue and see more of what Jesus did. And Judas, verse 2, who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas, we know who betrayed Jesus. We know because of the influence of the devil in his life. He had given over. He had been given over to the devil. It already happened, but now this betrayal is being manifested. It already happened. He already betrayed Jesus. Jesus already told him, go, get out of here, right? Before he gives the upper room discourse, he tells Judas to go, do what you do quickly. Do the work of the devil that you've been planning and plotting to do. And so that's all happening already. Now it's being manifested. It's being shown and revealed to everybody who was there, the disciples included. But Judas knew the place. It was common to them. Luke's gospel mentions that they frequently visited this place, especially after the feasts, because they, in their Jewish tradition, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the three big feasts, and so Passover being one of them, Judas knew this is where Jesus is going to go after celebrating the Passover. He celebrates Passover. Jesus is going to this garden. Jesus went to this common place to be found by the enemy. And what a completion we see as Adam hid from God in the Garden of Eden. And now Jesus, he didn't hide. He didn't find another place. He went to the place where he might be found in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well the enemy is looking for him. You see, Adam hid from God who was looking for him. Jesus didn't hide from the enemy who was looking for him. When it would make sense to run and hide. When it would make sense to get away from the enemy, get away from, get out of harm's way, why not, right? where Adam had God looking for him. God who was seeking nearness. God who was seeking fellowship with man in the Garden of Eden, and Adam was hiding from that fellowship, and now Jesus goes to a place where he might be found to bring fellowship back. Direct access, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 16, and we studied a couple weeks ago. Direct access to God. Jesus brought it back in the Garden. 
Jesus went to this common place to be found, a place where Judas knew he would be, showing in this arrival at Gethsemane great submission. According to Matthew's account, Jesus demonstrated full submission in the garden through prayer. As we said, he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he prayed that three times. He repeated that prayer, pleading with the Lord, let this cup pass if there's any other way. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to that place of full surrender and submission to the will and the work the will of the Father and the work of salvation. But even in showing up in the first place, Jesus showed his submission. Jesus, who we're about to see, is fully God, shows his submission to the work of salvation, to the will of the Father, and to the hand, at the hand of the enemy. Verse three. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Judas came fully equipped for battle. Judas. Judas who knew Jesus. Judas who spent every day with Jesus for three and a half years came ready to do battle with Jesus. Clearly, Judas did not know Jesus. He did not know the heart and the character of Jesus. He came with a detachment of troops. I mean, this is a, whole, this is a large army. Officers from the temple, right, getting the seal of approval from the religious system. He's got the seal of approval from the Roman government that everything is coming against Jesus. But yet we were told, Isaiah chapter 9, the government will be upon his shoulders. Now the government's coming against him. And he will be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It doesn't look like it. The government system, the religious system, it's coming against the Messiah. Judas shows up with a large army, with the officers from the temple. They were ready to do battle. And these troops, there would have been anywhere from 200 to 1,000 men, soldiers, not just like, hey, let's get a few hundred people and go get Jesus. This would have been anywhere from 200 to 1,000 soldiers ready to do battle, equipped with swords, spears, clubs, lanterns, torches. There's three different meanings of this word detachment in the Greek. And those three different meanings tell us it's somewhere between 200 and 1,000. But they were well-armed. And as we said, they were equipped with lanterns and torches. What does that tell us? They sent out a search party, lanterns and torches. They were like, we, we need to go find him. But that was unnecessary, wasn't it? It wasn't needed because Jesus had already surrendered himself in the spirit. More evidence that Judas did not know Jesus. He did not understand the heart and the character of Jesus. The approach to Jesus is a total misunderstanding or altogether disregard for his character. 
because Jesus completely and constantly demonstrated humility and surrender. In Matthew chapter 26, in the same account here in the garden, it says this, in that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. Many of these men had seen Jesus, they had watched Jesus with the crowds around him in the temple as he would teach as a rabbi, and they didn't come against him then. You didn't seize me then, but also this is addressed directly at Judas as well. You, didn't know, you don't know the character and heart of Jesus. You sat with me daily. You learned from me daily. And the rest of you saw me daily. You know that this is all unnecessary. You could have taken me at any time, but he's just clearly representing more and more all the time his deity, his power, his might, his authority. He had this whole situation under complete control, even though it didn't look like it. It looked like his back's against the wall. That's not how he responds. Not only does he question them in this way, saying, well, you come like, to me like I'm a robber? You come to take me away by, by brutal force? This is unnecessary. And, as we'll see later on, it would prove to be insufficient. They brought quite an army at the recommendation of Judas. And clearly he did not know the heart and character of Jesus. Verse four, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? He knows all things, right? Knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward. So not only did he, first of all, he was submitted that he went to the place that they knew, that Judas knew he would be, and he knew that Judas knew he would be there. He still went. And then not only that, there's this challenge and this question, who are you seeking? And Jesus steps forward. They tried to catch Jesus by surprise, but they couldn't catch Jesus by surprise because he knew what was coming and he had prepared himself for it. For chapters now, we've been studying the preparation for this. Jesus had been preparing himself. Jesus had been preparing his disciples. He knew it was coming. And now he would take the lead in showing his disciples what he desires. In, in representing his heart and character. He takes the lead. He says, whom are you seeking? He asked this question so as he takes the lead, he could take the hit. So that the disciples would not be the center of attention. But he steps forward. He goes to meet them. He doesn't wait for them to come against him. He steps forward. He brings the attention onto himself. Because he is the centerpiece of all that we believe. All of the attention needs to be on Jesus. So he steps forward. He drew out 
Not only did he step forward to take the lead and to draw attention to himself rather than his disciples, but he drew out the enemy and he drew out their plot. He made them say it. Who are you seeking? Remember, he knew all that was gonna happen. He knew exactly what they're about to say. He knew what was gonna happen to him further beyond this. And he says, whom are you seeking? A bit of a rhetorical question, but he challenges the enemy to proclaim their plot before him and before the disciples. Guys, Jesus is the front line of defense. Always. Always. And he steps forward to be the front line of defense and he calls out the enemy. In a sense, what he's saying is reveal yourself and reveal your plan. He knew what it was. He knew exactly what was happening, but he called him out. Verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, whom are you seeking? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. They call out who they're seeking, Jesus of Nazareth. This was a commonly used name for Jesus that he accepted in humility. You see, as they said it, it's intended to be a derogatory name. Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody always says nothing good could come from Nazareth. Nazareth, that tiny little useless town. And they say, yeah, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe even in that, these, these soldiers are thinking, we're following Judas. We got these, you know, these temple guards or these, you know, these, these officers sent from the temple and we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? Really? But either way, it's a derogatory name for Jesus that he embraces. Because that's not the name that matters. And what Jesus then responds with is the name that matters. They say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. The original text actually omits the word he. And so what Jesus is claiming right here and now is his deity. As we've heard him say so many times before, but he just states it like it is. We seek Jesus of Nazareth, the name that's a lame name on human terms. And Jesus says, here's the name that matters. I am. Wow. Jesus is proclaiming himself to be God. And in this, we're connected to all the statements that Jesus made. And we've studied through them in John's gospel so far. But let's remind ourselves. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And every statement that Jesus makes, he's fulfilling some form of religiosity. He's fulfilling some expectation, human expectation on the Messiah or on the religious system. And he's taking, he's tearing it all down and he's saying, I am. He says, I am the bread of life, John chapter six. In John chapter eight, he says, before Abraham was, I am. In John chapter nine, he says, I am 
the light of the world. As he's speaking to, to the healing of a blind man, he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the door. Jesus is the way in, the way out of the sheepfold. Again, further in John chapter 10, Jesus comparing himself with the bad shepherds, the false shepherds of that day in the religious system, he says, I am the good shepherd. Further in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the son of God. John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life as he raises Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he's talking about how we get to heaven. He's talking about the many mansions that the Father has prepared for us. Time and time again, the name that matters, the I am statement, he is fulfilling religion. He's breaking down the walls of religion. And he's bringing a fulfillment to all belief. But Jesus confronts them. He doesn't flee and he proclaims his deity. I am. That's the name that matters. And then John throws in here in verse five, Judas was there. This is John pointing out Judas clearly to be the betrayer, saying Judas was there with them. He was on the other side. He was leading the detachment. Imagine the shock of the surprise to the disciples. Remember, Jesus, not a surprise at all. He knew what was happening. He knew all things. But this is the moment for the disciples that they would have realized it was Judas. And remember, when we studied before, when Jesus sent Judas out of the upper room, they would have had no expectation of what that meant. They would have no expectation that Judas is the guy who was going to betray Jesus. And so now when they see Judas on the other side, facing them down, when they see Judas on the other side leading the troops into battle against Jesus, imagine how disheartening that would be. But Jesus had been preparing them for this. See, they didn't actually understand all that that entailed, but Jesus had been preparing them for this. In verse six, now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Amen. Let's say it again. When... When he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The name that matters brought them to the place of surrender. Unwillful surrender, I might add. After Jesus had set this glorious example of willful surrender, and all he says is the name that matters, I am. Words of great comfort to the disciples. 
when they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, the disciples are like, yeah, yeah, watch this. But these are words of terror to the enemy. They fell to the ground. This was their response to the self-presentation of Jesus Christ. Displaying his majesty, power, and glory. This is a glimpse of the fullness of God. He says, I am. They get this little glimpse. Jesus, he's representing his self-surrender and he's demanding reverence at the same time. Proving that their efforts to capture Jesus were in vain and insufficient. Because at that name, the only name that matters, they fall down. They've got no power over him. And he demonstrates that to them. Hundreds drew back. Remember we said before that Jesus went forth, this one man, hundreds facing him down, Jesus went forth, he went forward. And these hundreds drew back at the name I am. And not only did they draw back, they fell down. Now there's translation that would point it to the fact that they fell down like dead people. They found, fell down in complete surrender and they were put in a place of humility. They were put in their place because Jesus was in complete control over the whole situation. Jesus here, he's demonstrating glorious meekness. It's perfect power under complete control. And so then he asks again, verse seven, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now this time, he asked the question again, whom are you seeking? Drawing attention, first of all, back to the matter at hand because he knew what needed to take place. He's like, hey, remember, you guys are coming to arrest me? Remember that? Like that's, that's I mean, you get this, he's in control here. These hundreds of, of soldiers fell to the ground. He's like, all right, guys, come on. Let's try again. Whom are you seeking? And even in that question, challenging them, whom are you seeking? He's drawing attention to the matter at hand, but he's showing them mercy even and calling them back to attention. Pointing out to them what they came for because Jesus was that surrendered, that submitted to the work of salvation. He could have said, I am, they draw back, they fall to the ground. He's like, let's go, guys. That could have been the end of it. And they could have never gotten up from that place. That's the power in the name. The fullness of God represented. What he's even questioning them to say is, are you sure? After clear recognition of his glory, as they respond, this time you might imagine they were a little bit nervous. When he says, whom are you seeking? Again, 
um, Jesus of Nazareth? You know, like there's just, there's, this is intimidating. They've just been knocked to the ground in surrender to Jesus. But we continue, verse eight. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. What Jesus is saying here is, I have told you and I have shown you. I have told you and I have shown you that I am. I spoke it, I represented it. It was pretty obvious at this point. But he said, let's keep the focus on me. Let them go their way. He's protecting the disciples as he prayed in John 17 for their protection. He's protecting the disciples. Let them go their way. That this might be fulfilled. That I didn't lose any. That what I prayed for would happen. And he's, what he's saying to them is like, hey, just let's let everything fall in line under my authority, okay? I'll take care of this. You don't need your clubs and your swords and your, and your spears and your lanterns and your torches. Let's do it my way. In perfection. In complete submission to God's perfect plan for redemption, to fulfill the work of salvation. And this really was more of a command from Jesus than it was a request. Because he says, I have told you and I have shown you, his display of power was a demand of respect so that this army would do what he says. And this army he has under his control at this point, and he says, spare them. Jesus offered himself to give passage to the disciples, a foreshadowing of what was to come. Since we just established that Jesus knew all that was to come, he gives a foreshadowing here, says, let's keep the focus on me. This is what you came for. Let's leave the disciples out of it. That my prayer to the Father, which is what matters, you guys don't matter. My prayer, my conversation with the Father said that I have lost none, so let's keep it that way. And this also would have been a signal to the disciples to get out. This is a good time for them to leave. Jesus giving the signal, Jesus told them that they would be scattered. And here he's saying, it's time to scatter. Let's leave the disciples alone. Leave them out of it. But, verse 10, but verse 10, then Simon Peter, after Jesus said, let's leave the disciples out of it, Simon Peter's like, I'm not gonna be out of it. And he comes with his sword. Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. First, it's a reference to Simon, Peter. Referring back to Simon, the old man. Remember Jesus looked at him when he called him. He said, you are Simon, you shall be Cephas. I'm gonna change your life 
And now it refers back to Simon Peter. There he goes again, living life as the old man, the old things that have not yet passed away, Peter. And so Simon Peter does what Simon Peter does. And John refers back to this. He was acting like the old Simon. So he calls him out as the old Simon. He had a sword, which probably was more of a fisherman's knife. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a warrior of any sort. He was a fisherman called by Jesus. He was a poor fisherman called by Jesus. So he, if he, whatever he had was not anything fancy. And he pulls it out and he drew it to attack. And what Peter's doing here. He's trying to demonstrate his version of faith on his terms. And don't we do the same? Don't we draw out our little knife when Jesus literally just spoke and said, said, spoke the name that matters and at that name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they just watched it happen. They just got a foreshadowing of all the things to come, every knee bowing as they fell to the ground. And don't we know it? Don't we have the faith to believe that he is all-powerful? He is the name above every name and that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't we believe it? But yet we take out our little knife and we're like, no, I've got a plan. He drew it to attack. He's demonstrating his version of faith on his terms. Remember, Peter had said that he would die. He would fight for Jesus. He would not allow this to happen. So Peter's just doing it. But Jesus already told him, no, Peter, you're not gonna do that. Stop. He told him before, no, get behind me, Satan. And now he does it anyway. He's trying to defend and fight for his version of faith on his terms of what faith is with his little knife after the I am just spoke these hundreds into complete submission. He tries to force them into submission with his little knife. And it, it mentions that it was Malchus who was a servant of the high priest the, the, the emphasis here, Malchus, a servant of the high priest, he's like a ministry intern. That's what he is. He's not a soldier. So of course Peter goes after him. Peter's like, I got it. And the reality that he cut off his right ear, and in that day, it was, it was unacceptable to be left-handed, right? So people were forced to be right-handed. So Peter, the right-handed man, either had really bad aim or he attacked him from the back. The guy who wasn't a soldier, he went after from behind with his little toy knife. This is what our faith looks like when we're dealing with the almighty God. This is what our version of faith looks like. Like, I got my knife, and I'm going after the enemy, but not a strong one. I'm going to go after the little guy who's not a soldier, and I'm going to attack him from the back because I'm actually really afraid, but I have to show Jesus that I'm really strong. And Jesus is like, no, they'll bow. 
And what does Jesus say? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? They've had this conversation before, just without the sword. Jesus told him he was gonna die. Peter said, no, I'm gonna fight for you. It's not gonna happen. Get behind me, Satan. I already told you. But now here's Peter fighting on his terms, demonstrating his version of faith on his terms, and Jesus says, put it away. Stop. What Jesus says here, Peter, your plan is flawed. Stop your plan. Put it away. One, to protect Peter. This would have been, this would have gone badly. From here, what happens? Peter cuts off an ear of, of, of somebody in this hundreds of groups of people and then all the soldiers turn on Peter and Peter and the disciples are gone. That's the simple, quick reality. That doesn't fit God's perfect plan. And to prevent an aggressive perspective of the disciples. If the disciples were known as warriors, fighters, would they be able to spread the gospel in grace and humility? That's what was needed. It was, of course, to prevent the death of the disciples right here and now. Jesus then further, John doesn't tell us, but we know, according to the other gospels in Matthew, that Jesus takes up the ear and heals Malchus. Jesus covered up the evidence. He takes our foolish versions of faith and he covers us so that we could press on in the reality of faith and what honors him and pleases him. What Jesus is saying, listen, stop your plan, don't stop God's plan. As he says, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Don't stop God's plan, it's perfect. If you do this, you will prevent God's perfect plan from happening. In Christ being arrested right here and now in the proper way, where it is Jesus surrendering himself, who doesn't go down with, with a fight, who, who shows and performs his great power and deity, and yet still surrenders himself, you would stop that from happening. You would stop the glorification of Christ if you put faith into your own terms. If you do things your way, you prevent the glorification of Christ. You prevent the work that was to be completed and you would prevent the greater works that are to be done in Peter specifically and through Peter. And not just Peter, but the rest of the disciples. So Jesus says, stop your plan and don't stop God's plan. It's perfect and it's about salvation. This sword, it's about man. It's about our power. That's faith on our terms. But Jesus says, no, there's a perfect way. There's a perfect plan. I'm submitted to it and you should be too. Let's pray.
Jesus, we glorify you today. Thank you so much for the, the sacrifice you made that we get to study about, that we get to see here in Scripture. We thank you for that submission in the garden, the surrender. And our prayer truly is that we might likewise surrender to your will, to your way, to your perfect plan. We thank you that you are good, that you are holy. Jesus, we need you. We need you to work in our lives right here and now that we might be surrendered in faith. To your way. And we thank you that you made a way. As always, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, I want to give you an opportunity to enter into that relationship. What that looks like is simply that you would confess that you are a sinner. The Bible says that all have sinned. And we take that to be truth. The word of God is truth. The Bible says all have sinned. So all we need to do is say yes, amen. We confess and we admit that we are sinners. And then we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he rose from the dead, and that he desires a relationship, he desires fellowship. This is all the work that's happening in the garden that we study today. Remember, we talked about in the Garden of Eden, the separation, the break in fellowship, but Jesus brought fellowship back. We can only have fellowship if we enter into fellowship. We enter into relationship. 